Amen. Please be seated. You can turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll look at verses 11 through 14 this morning. The text is also printed for you in the bulletin. In a few minutes, we're going to recite the Apostles' Creed together as our confession of faith, a corporate confession of our faith. It's the essential teachings of the Bible. It's the core of what we believe about God and about the gospel. Um, and it's something that we share in common with all Christians everywhere, from every tribe and language and nation and people throughout history. This confession is what binds us together. The Apostles' Creed itself is a Trinitarian statement, so that means it's um, in structure and in content. It, uh, it talks about the triune God, the first article uh, or the first paragraph or it's actually just a sentence, uh, is about the Father, the second article about the Son, Jesus Christ, and the third article about the Spirit. The opening of Ephesians that we've been in um, for several weeks, and this is the last week on this kind of run-on sentence, the last part of this uh, introduction that Paul's making here to his letter about the church, the opening of Ephesians is also Trinitarian in structure and in content. We've looked at the love of God the Father in his choosing us, his uh, setting his love on us, his adopting us as, uh, as his children. We've looked at the grace of Jesus Christ in his redemption, his sacrifice for us, and his uniting us to himself. Um, and this morning we're looking at the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Who the Holy Spirit is and his work in the gospel for our salvation is a hugely important part of the Bible. And it has some tremendously significant ramifications for our life together. And a really interesting feature of the Apostles' Creed is that uh, in the third article, where we profess faith in the Holy Spirit, um, it mentions him and the Holy Catholic Church or the Holy Universal Church in the same breath. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Church. Those things are together. It's because we have the Holy Spirit that we have this holy church, this holy Catholic, universal, from every tribe, language, nation, and people, church. And this is wonderful stuff. Let's pray, and then we'll look at just a little bit of what that means for us this morning. So let's pray. Father, we pray that you would make us sensitive to and receptive to your word. Take people whose hearts are naturally inclined away from you and cause our hearts to rest on you through the gospel. We pray that you would catch us up into the relationships of the Trinity, fill our minds with a vision of the gospel, especially an understanding of the Holy Spirit, his, his person and his work in knitting us together in the fellowship of the Spirit in this church. And in the universal church, the holy Catholic church, we pray that you would help us to understand your work in our lives and the effect that it should have on us as we consider your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. 
In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're not going to cover everything in this depth in passage. Some of it we've actually looked at. Some of the language is uh, carried on thematically from earlier parts in the passage that we looked at. Uh, what I want to do this morning is hit you with actually some pretty serious theology pretty quickly um, and then spend some time talking about one area of application that's especially significant uh, in light of recent events in our denomination and in our country. And if all of this is coming too fast, we should find some time to talk more about it later. But I think especially it's important, even though it'll be maybe fast, uh, is uh, significant theology because our, um, our life in this world, our life in relationships in the church, the way that we view the church and all of, all of life, is it has to be shaped by uh, the most profound um, uh, theology, right? The, the way that we view God, who he is, and what he's done for us in the gospel and what he's doing in our lives has to affect the way that we live. And so... Um, if we're going to live in a certain way, we need that core. We need that, the heart of reality uh, to make sense to us. Um, we need some serious theology. So there's, uh, there's a lot in this passage about inheritance. From the beginning of the Bible, God's promises to his people to fix what we broke through our rebellion, uh, to set things back right, to bring the world, the whole world, and humanity to the true glory for which he originally made us and intended for us, God's promises have been bound up with this concept of inheritance, usually in the Old Testament in the form of a promised land. Right? Uh, he promised the land of Canaan to Abraham in Genesis. Uh, and he fulfilled that promise when he delivered Israel from Egypt several hundred years later uh, by Moses, and he brought them into the land under Joshua. And it's said that they divided the inheritance among the tribes of Israel. This is the promised land, the inheritance that they were promised. He taught his people that their inheritance was theirs forever. Even if they had to sell their land because of poverty, every jubilee year it would be returned to them because it was their inheritance forever. You don't lose this kind of inheritance. This kind of promise stands for you. Um, the kingdom of Israel, after King David and King Solomon, they experienced severe division. Severe division. And uh, it ultimately led to their exile as a nation, as two nations, because the nation was so divided, it became Israel in the north and Judah in the south, led to their exile in Assyria and then in Babylon. Nevertheless, God graciously promised to return his people to their land, uh, to restore them to their inheritance as his chosen people among nations in the world. And he fulfilled that promise when he brought the exiles home under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah and, and others. Now, throughout the history of the Old Testament, the history of God's dealings with his people, believers have here and there understood the concept of inheritance, this kind of promise, this inheritance to apply to something, to signify something much greater, much more profound than just a plot of land along the coast in the, of the Mediterranean. Right? Believers here and there have seen it to mean something much more than just a place for my family to live. Um, in fact, in the New Testament, we see those promises expand 
to cover not just physical Israel or Palestine, but to cover the whole earth. We see it very clearly. The whole earth, actually the heavens and the earth, the whole cosmos, everything God has made will be restored and brought to glory in the new heavens and the new earth. This still doesn't get to the full biblical picture of inheritance, right? uh, which our passage is full of this, this language. The reason Israel in the Old Testament expected to receive the promised land, the reason why we in the church expect to inherit the earth, as Jesus said, the meek shall inherit the earth, is because of what's right here in our passage, something hinted at here and there in the Old Testament. It's because as we read in uh, Psalm 16 in our Old Testament reading, it says that God himself is our inheritance. We inherit everything because God himself is our inheritance. And since God is over all things, then all things are ours. We have God, and in him we have all things. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, All things are yours. Whether the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. So it's because in Christ we belong to God and he belongs to us that all things are our inheritance. Now, simple question, which is more significant to say? That all things are yours or that God himself is yours? Stuff or the relationship? Which one's more significant? God himself. Uh, To say that God himself is our inheritance is more significant than to say that that we inherit the whole world. To say that we inherit God is more significant. And that's what this passage is saying. It's actually saying two things about inheritance. That God is our inheritance and that we are God's inheritance. He's ours and we are his. It says in verse 11, in him, in Christ... We have obtained an inheritance. The promised Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance, right? That, that's, <clears throat> uh, and then actually in, in verse 14, a better translation is that uh, instead of he, it's the guarantee of our inheritance of God, it's just a, a guarantee until the, the redemption of the possession, really. And this probably means uh, until, until God has inherited us. So we've inherited him, and until he inherits us, we have the Holy Spirit. It's made more clear a little bit later in verse 18. It says, it talks about his glorious inheritance in the the saints. So it's this mutual inheritance, right? Mutual promise, mutual inheritance. Um, It says in Deuteronomy 7, You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, right? So he's chosen you for his inheritance, his treasured possession. Deuteronomy 9, uh, Moses is praying to God, and he says, they are your people and your heritage. And Deuteronomy 32, it says that the Lord's portion, his, his inheritance, the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. So what is a, this treasured possession, allotted heritage, portion, uh, inheritance? It's probably easy to understand this. Tim Keller has a great way of uh, uh, an analogy to use here. It says it's easy to understand it as a family heirloom, right? A family treasure. Something, it's whatever that thing is in your house that you own that's of uh, supreme worth to you that is is worth running back into the house to get when the house is on fire and collapsing around your ears. It's worth the risk because if you can get that one thing, maybe it's got more than just sentimental value. Maybe it's got real, you know, 
from monetary value, if you get that one thing, man, you're going to be okay, right? You could lose everything. You lose all your photos, uh, all the, the trinkets, all the toys that you've collected, but you need that, that, that one thing you're willing to run back into the house, that family heirloom that's precious to you, right? Now that you would, you'd abandon everything else, but you'd save that one treasure. You are God's treasured possession in that way. That's what the scriptures say. They're, they're pretty bold. Uh, and he is yours. It's a mutual inheritance. It's a mutual treasured possession. By grace, through Jesus Christ, he has you. And you have him. And that will always be true. And there will be a day when we see it, right? Uh, when we see it face to face. And this is another aspect of all those ancient promises in the Old Testament, so many of which go this way. I will be your God, and you will be my people. The, the Old Testament's full of that promise. In Ezekiel 36, this is a, a beautiful promise that um, comes true in Christ for us. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I shall be your God. So all these promises tied up together. Song of Solomon, uh, chapter 2, says it maybe a little bit more passionately. My beloved is mine, and I am his. My beloved is mine, and I am his. These are the promises that God's made to us. These things are all tied together. The Bible's full of God's promises to win his people back to himself. And one of the most profound is the promised gift of the Holy Spirit, where he says, I will put my spirit within you. This is the most profound promise because the Holy Spirit is God himself. Right? The third person of the Trinity is not an inferior deity. He's not less God than the Father or the Son. He is fully God. He's God-given. He's the self-gift of God. When the Father gives himself to his Son, that's the Holy Spirit. And when the Son returns himself to the Father, that's the Holy Spirit. He is God, and he is love. He's love because he's the self-gift of the triune God who is love. He's the Holy Spirit... We call him the Holy Spirit uh, because he is distinct. That, that word holy meaning set apart, unlike anything else. He's distinct. He is unlike our spirits. He's unlike any other spirit because he's the spirit of love. He's the spirit of unity. Whereas our spirits are pulling away from God and from each other. He's the spirit of love, which makes him the Holy Spirit. Now, to receive the promised Holy Spirit is to receive God himself. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee, he's the down payment, he's the earnest payment of this inheritance, right? In the new heavens and the new earth, we'll see God face to face in a glory that makes all things new. We will have him, finally, forever. We'll have him. And he will have us, this full mutual um, treasured possession. This ultimate inheritance is guaranteed to those who have the Spirit, Guaranteed to those who have the Spirit, to those who have the fellowship with God and each other that's only possible in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> if you're a believer then, uh, Christ has lavished his Spirit on you in baptism. John the Baptist said, 
Uh, He told people that Christ would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. At Pentecost, Jesus poured out his spirit on his people in a way that had a unifying effect on those who were gathered there. These people from, uh, they were Jews from different lands, spoke different languages, and the, the effect that the spirit had was to bring them together in the gospel so that they could even understand each other. Um, and today he pours out his spirit on believers everywhere, on all those who have, as Paul says, heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. Karl Barth says that Christians are those who are breathed upon by Christ. It's an intimate picture, but that's uh, the word spirit in both Hebrew and Greek can also be translated breath. He's the breath of God. He's the breath of Christ. And in one of the accounts, Uh, of the Gospels after Jesus' resurrection, he breathed upon his disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So it's an intimate picture. We are his, and he is ours. My beloved is mine, and I am his. Through the Holy Spirit of love who's been given to us. And a big point that Paul is making here is that this is corporately true. This is not just for you as an individual. This is corporately true in spite of whatever differences we might have. This is very important. This is corporately true in spite of whatever differences we might have. It's easy to miss this unless you see the emphasis that he's making in the distinction between verses 12 and 13. In verse 12, he says that this is so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also When you heard the gospel, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We who were the first to hope in Christ is Jews who responded to the gospel. You also, even though you're not Jews, you're Gentiles. You received the Holy Spirit when you heard the gospel with faith. This is a huge theme running throughout Paul's letter to the Ephesians. The reconciliation of these two groups, Jews and Gentiles, in one body. In Jesus Christ, in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the reconciliation of natural enemies. In Christ, in the church, we believe in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Catholic Church. The Holy Spirit of love makes us a holy church of love. Whatever tribe or language or nation or people we are from, we share together in our inheritance of God. And God inherits us together. Mutual treasured possession. Peter O'Brien is a commentator on this. He says that in the new community of the redeemed, there are no first or second class citizens. This was a really big deal in the early church as Christ in the gospel overcame the division between Jews and Gentiles. Whole swaths of the New Testament are devoted to that struggle. Whole books Talk about that struggle of reconciling these two people groups in the church. They were mortal enemies. They wanted to have nothing to do with each other. Each disdained and despised the other. Each saw the other as inferior and unnecessary. Just unnecessary. Through the history of the church, we've continued to have the same problem, whether uh, the divisions are characterized by tribal war or linguistic problems, or national divisions, we're prone to division. We're prone to division. That's what's in our spirits. But the gospel says in Christ, we've all been given the Holy Spirit who overcomes all divisions. Galatians 3 says there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one 
in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, according, heirs according to the promise. So we still have an acute need for the gospel to do its work in our church today. You look around at each other's faces and you'll see what I'm talking about. We have uh, one Hispanic family in membership in our church. And, um, and Hillsborough is one of the most ethnically diverse cities in our region. And uh, it's a quarter Hispanic at least. This neighborhood that, that we're in right now is uh, my neighborhood. My kids go to the school here is predominantly Hispanic, and at this moment we are a minority, a vast minority, in the place where we're sitting. All these white people. Um, and I'll confess my own sin here. When, uh, when starting to plant ascension, when starting to plan it and think through it and going through church planner assessment along the way, uh, I was so overwhelmed with the magnitude of the, the thought of a multicultural church, it was so overwhelming that I just stopped thinking about it. It seems like kind of one of those ideals. You're like, wow, that'd be amazing. Look, this place is primed. There's all kinds of ethnic diversity here. It's way too much work. I can't even imagine where you'd start. So I'm going to put that out of my mind and do what's easy. It's a huge endeavor. I have no idea how to start. So instead of working... Instead of seeing the value in it, instead of working toward it, I just excuse myself from the responsibility. It's, it's really hard. It's too hard to bring people together from different tribes, tongues, and nations. It's unimaginably hard work. I just can't do it, can I? I can't do it, right? Um, there's a huge problem with uh, the unwillingness to move toward unity in diversity. There's a huge problem with the unwillingness to do that. Um, Dr. Anthony Bradley is an African-American brother in the PCA, in our denomination. He teaches religious studies at the King's College <clears throat> in New York City. And he says that in America, the only denominations that will survive in the future will have multi-ethnic members and leaders as the country's racial demographics change. The future of American evangelicalism will be diversely Asian-American, Hispanic, and African-American in its public expression if it's going to have a future at all. This seems pretty simple. You look at it and white people are uh, not just this vast majority in the country anymore, right? Uh, it's moving in a certain direction, and if, if the church doesn't keep up with that, maybe the church won't be around uh, very much longer in the form that we are used to it. Our predominantly white southern denomination, maybe you're not aware of the history of our <clears throat> particular denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, has its roots in the south. Most of its churches are in the south. Um, we're slowly coming to the realization of this and to the awareness of our historic neglect of this feature of the gospel, moving toward unity and diversity. The case has been made that the founding of our denomination was in part motivated by, by a desire to maintain racial segregation. Maybe you didn't hear that. <laughs> the founding of our denomination was in part motivated by a desire to maintain racial segregation. Um, our denomination was founded in 1973 at the tail end of the civil rights movement. And we actually have some 
a case can be made for this, an anti-civil rights history that flies straight in the face of the gospel, straight in the face of Ephesians, of which we need to repent. And um, some of that repentance was engaged in at our last denominational meeting just a couple weeks ago. <clears throat> our uh, denomination met in Chattanooga and had a several-hour-long conversation about how uh, we can start to repent from our unwillingness to move toward unity. Um, and Reverend Jim Baird, who was a former senior pastor of First Presbyterian Church Jackson um, at, the, at this General Assembly just a couple weeks ago, said that in 1971, 12 men were elected to form a new denomination, take two years and form that denomination. Of those 12 men, six were ministers and six were ruling elders. All have died or left the PCA except two, Kennedy Smart and me, Jim Baird says. And I confess that in 1973, the only thing I understood was that we were starting a new denomination, which we did. And I confess that I did not raise a finger for civil rights. I was tasked with one thing, and that was to start a new denomination for the sake of the scripture, for the sake of the preservation of historic Presbyterianism, and for the furtherance of the gospel proclamation. And so I confess my sin. I'm not confessing the sin of my fathers. I'm confessing my sin. And of those 12 men... Were we racists? No. But we did not do anything to help our black brethren. I don't feel like a racist. But what have I done to help my brothers? Uh, the ancient church struggled with racism. It's not that mysterious of a problem. It's in our sin nature to find any available reason whatsoever to distinguish ourselves from others. We do that all the time. We all do that. Look for any reason to be better than others, to justify ourselves. Racism is one of those ways. Racism, it, it infects our country, it, even our churches today. It's no surprise that we continue to just be satisfied with ourselves, the easy thing to do, right? Uh, unity and uniformity, right? Not diversity. We're satisfied with a church full of people just like ourselves. But the Holy Spirit creates a holy church, the spirit of love creates a community of love. The spirit of unity brings unity in diversity in the church where together we belong to God. Not just me. Together we belong to God, and God belongs to us together, and so we belong to each other. We belong to each other, and anyone who resists this resists the Holy Spirit. In Christ... Because of the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, there is no us in them. There's only us. And the way forward is to embrace the love of Christ and the gospel for us, for all of us. That's the way forward. The way forward is not to beat people over the heads with their own guilt. You can try that. It won't make a change. Um, it's not the way forward. It's to confess our own guilt. The way forward is to confess my guilt. That God's vision for the church and my vision have not aligned very well. That I have not loved my neighbor very well. That I have not considered them worth the effort. Because it's effort. That I haven't viewed them as having something to offer to me. Right. 
if, if this is going to be a helpful relationship to anybody, it'll be me helping them. I confess that I haven't viewed them as having something to offer me. I haven't gloried in our solidarity together in the gospel. Gloried in the power of the Holy Spirit to bring unity and diversity. I haven't done that. And I haven't lifted my voice on behalf of my brothers and sisters who suffer alienation and hatred because of their tribe, tongue, nation, or language. Um, In the church, we're good at confessing our sins because we have a lot of them. We have more than we know. And this should be what characterizes us. We're good at confessing our sins. Um, If we're not aware of them, we pray truly that God would reveal them to us. And we don't stop there. We don't stop with the confession of our sin, but we continue through confession of faith in Christ. Because the gospel means you can't just be a people who complain about injustices. You can't just be a people who uh, see what's wrong with the world and see what's wrong inside of us and just lament things. The gospel takes us past that point We're a people who find true hope in Jesus Christ and only in Jesus Christ to bring real reconciliation where it's needed, real unity and diversity. And we're a people who give serious thought, who work. We're supposed to be a people who work. We take real actions toward the expression of our solidarity as those who inherit the God of love together in the Holy Spirit. We need to think through our own prejudices. We need to wrestle with our own tendencies to be condescending. We need to figure out what it would look like if I actually had a conversation with somebody with different color skin. What kind of things am I going to say to them? Am I I going to be driven by just this condescending attitude? We need to wrestle through that. We need to figure out how to interact with our neighbors from different tribes, tongues, and nations. The gospel frees us for mutual service in Christ. We need their help, and they need our help. That's, that's true. Mutually, we need each other's help. We can serve each other. We can teach each other. We can learn from each other. We can pray for each other, which we need to do these days. And we can support each other in the face of tragedies like what happened this week with our African-American brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters in Charleston, We can ask forgiveness, and we can extend forgiveness. We can learn together what it means to truly love one another. You're not going to learn what it means to truly love one another unless you do it together. We just need to figure out how to spend time together and actually enjoy each other, right? Enjoy each other's company in Christ and the church. And then maybe we'll start to flesh out this vision for the church as a place That should lead the world in reconciliation because we've got the true reconciliation that's only available in Jesus Christ and the gospel. Maybe we can lead the world in that direction, at least be out there in front of them. The gospel really is the only hope for a world like this, a world characterized so much by painful division and hatred and suspicion. The church really can show the world what the grace of Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit looks like. That would be a beautiful thing. That would be a testimony to the power of the gospel. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would keep us uh, open to your grace, 
that you would keep our hearts tender to your work in our lives and open and tender to one another because um, even as we have inherited you in Christ, as we've received the Holy Spirit and you have inherited us, uh, we have inherited each other. We belong to each other. And we pray that you would give us a true sense of that unity, that you would begin to shape us and, and draw us away from our own tendencies toward division and suspicion and hatred and just neglect and the unwillingness to see any good in our brothers and sisters who are different from us. Um, We pray that you would help us to learn what it means to love one another in the gospel, in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.